Well, welcome to the City Church. If it's your first time joining us, we are pumped that you're, that you're here, honored that you're visiting us. I want to welcome those of you watching online at one of our Hope City locations. Uh, we're pumped that you're joining us right now as well. We are finishing up a four-part message series called The Vow Today. This series has been based on a series that Pastor Craig Rochelle preached at his church, Life Church, and his series and this series are also based on a book from Jimmy Evans called Marriage on the the Rock, Marriage on the Rock by Jimmy Evans. So a lot of the content from this series has come from one of those two sources. My, my goal, my, my prayer in this series is that God would help those of you that aren't married, but maybe you hope to be married one day, that he would do a work in your hearts and he would give you the tools that you need to be prepared to have a marriage that truly honors God. And if you are married, I believe that God's word through this series is going to strengthen you, empower you, encourage you, change you, and give you hope. Give you hope, especially if you're in a difficult situation right now. I pray that it's gonna give you hope and it's gonna give you the tools that you need as a husband or as a wife to be a blessing to your spouse, to honor God and to be a blessing to the generations that follow after you. We just believe that God wants something better for your marriage. Like regardless of where you're at in your marriage, whether it's struggling or it's healthy right now, no marriage is perfect, but whether it's struggling, struggling or healthy, we just believe that God has something so much better for your marriage and we find those things in his word, and if you're single, we just believe that God has something so much better for you in a godly marriage in this culture, in this world, is leading you to believe and leading you to think God has something better. But to experience the better, to experience his best, we have to acknowledge that God is the designer and that he has designed things in a way for us to experience his best. And when we go outside of God's way, we're going to experience pain. We're going to suffer because we're going against the way the designer has designed something to function. Guys, let me ask you this question. Men, husbands, imagine your wife saying, I love you, but I wanna have sex with this guy at the gym. Any takers? Anybody like, yeah, that sounds good, I'm up for that. No takers, really, I'm so shocked by that. I'm, I'm shocked that there are no hands. Let, let me ask the ladies, ladies, imagine your husband saying, I love you, but I wanna have sex with this girl I work with. Any takers on that? Anybody okay with that? Didn't think so, right? Not, no, there's no takers on that. Let, let, me ask it a, let me ask it a different way. If you had your choice, would you rather your spouse or let's say your future spouse have had sex with 50 people or zero people? Any takers on the 50? I didn't think so, right? You would choose the zero over the 50. Why is that? Why is that? Like, like why is it that husbands and wives feel so betrayed when their spouse has sex with someone else? Why, why is it that most people's biggest regrets in this life are sexual? Mine are. My biggest regrets in this life are sexual. It's not cheating on a test, it's not lying, it's not getting drunk. My biggest regrets in this life are sexual. And my guess is a lot of us would say something very similar. That our biggest regrets in this life are, are sexual. Why, why is your sexual history so difficult? Why is it so hard to talk about with the person you love? Why, why is that? Why, why did we answer those questions that way? Why, why is this such a, a big deal? Here's why. Because the essence of intimacy is exclusivity. 
If you're taking notes on our app, this is where you fill in the blank with the words in all caps. If you don't have our app, you can download it in your app store. It's called the City Church Lubbock. You click message notes and all the points and verses and quotes are there and there are a ton today. And so that's the best way to kind of lean in and stay engaged in our time is to take notes using the message notes in our app. The, the reason you answered that question just a second ago, the, re, the, the reason you answered it the way you answered it was because the essence of intimacy is exclusivity. Exclusivity is giving yourself wholly to one person. We also call this purity. The essence of intimacy is exclusivity. It's purity. Today we're talking about the vow of purity. In previous weeks, we've looked at three other vows. This series is a study of four vows to experience God's best in your marriage or in your future marriage. In week one, we looked at the vow of priority. And we said this, I promise that God will be my first priority and my spouse will be my second. And we've said this every week, that you've got to understand this. This is the foundation for the whole series, the vow of priority, because you can't do any other vow. You can't perform anything that we're talking about, right, if you don't get this First, if you don't have the vow of priority in place, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, where you're knowing Jesus and you're following Jesus and serving Jesus and worshiping Jesus, then everything else that we're talking about, like all the cute one, two, threes, like all the practical stuff, all the funny stuff that we've talked about throughout the, it, none of it is possible without a relationship with Jesus because you can't do it. All these cute one, two, threes and practical things will just be like a law unto itself that will bring shame in your life because you won't be able to measure up. You won't be able to do the one, two, threes, I promise you right now. And so you need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, where he changes you and transforms you more and more into the image of Christ, where you become more and more of a godly husband, or you become more and more of a godly wife, because that's what, that's what Jesus is doing inside of you and through you, and he's empowering you then to live out these other vows. So he said in week one, the vow of priority, I promise God's going to be my first, my spouse is going to be my second, that, that I'm not trying to find the one in order to be happy. No, the one is Jesus. And so I'm seeking after him. God's my one, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for my two if I'm single. I'm becoming the one, the one I'm looking for is looking for. I'm becoming, the, I'm not searching for the one because the one is Jesus, so I'm becoming the one. My spouse is gonna be my two. Week two, we talked about the vow of pursuit and we said I promised to always pursue my two. In week three, we talked about the vow of partnership and we said, I promise our marriage will always be about we and not me. And we said the gospel, at the end of last week, we said the gospel is calling us to partnership and pursuit. Week two and week three's vows, right? The gospel is calling us to partnership and pursuit in spite of performance. Because the marriage relationship is a picture of the gospel and God's unconditional love for you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. God loved you and he showed grace and mercy and compassion to you in spite of your performance. And the marriage relationship is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, the scripture says. And so we said the gospel calls us to partnership and pursuit in spite of performance as a picture of the gospel, and then here's what we're talking about today, the vow of purity. The vow of purity says this, I, I promise to give myself exclusively to my two. I promise to give myself exclusively to my two. And if you're single, if 
you're dating, Here, here's the idea I want you to consider and I want you to pray about and I want you to get, it's a big idea for you today if you're single, if you're dating, here's this, that purity now paves the way to intimacy later. God's got something great in store for you. So much better than anything this world or this culture is preaching to you or telling you or anyone else is telling you, God has something better for you. And purity now is going to pave the way to that intimacy, to that better, to God's best later. We're talking about the vow of purity today. And so we're gonna go back to the beginning just like we have each week, Genesis chapter two, verse 24. Here's where we get this, this purity, this exclusivity, this intimacy. Verse 24, this explains why man leaves his father and mother, Adam and Eve have come together. They've joined together in husband and wife. And the scripture says, and remember Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirmed all of this. God's plan for gender, God's plan for marriage. Jesus quoted all of this and said, just as it was in the beginning, that was God's good plan. That was his design. And so we, we see in Genesis two, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother is united to his wife and the two We've looked at this word almost every week, are united into one. And we've talked about the depth of this word in the Hebrew language. They're united into one. And here's what we're gonna see today, that this uniting together is not only spiritual and emotional and mental, it's also physical, that there is a very practical and like real aspect, like tangible aspect to this uniting into one. Two are becoming one flesh. And so there's two like big points I want to make today to help us understand God's good design for sex and what that means. Number one, here's number one. God is for sex. God is for sex. When Adam and Eve started having sex that very first time, God wasn't like, oh, me, right? Get it? I told you I was done with the dad jokes. I had one more, all right, okay? No, no, God wasn't like, what are they doing? That goes there? I had no idea. Like, I had no idea they would do that with those things, right? No, 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 no. God planned it. He created it like he fashioned it for sex. He wasn't surprised by this. No, he was giving this as a good gift to a husband and a wife. God is for sex. And we see this all throughout the scripture. Look in Proverbs chapter five, uh, five verse 19. It says this, let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. It's like, may you always be like drunk, intoxicated with her love. And in case you're like, well, sure. Yeah, guys, you know, want, want sex, right? right. That's what we always imagine. That's what we always, no, 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 no. The scripture talks about a woman's desire for sex too. Look with me, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two. This is the woman speaking in this dialogue between this, this man and this woman who are going to get married. And she says this, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. Now, here's what you're gonna miss, like if you don't study the original language. This word love is lovemaking. She says, your lovemaking is better than wine. It's sweeter than wine. Your lovemaking, she says, is sweeter than wine. This is the woman talking. Like, she wants him. And if you read throughout Song of Solomon, here's what you're gonna find. Song of Solomon in the Bible is extremely erotic and graphic. And she over and over and over again communicates her intense sexual desire for her husband. It's all throughout the scripture. 
And so here's what we learn in the Bible. It is clear that God gave the good gift of sex for mutual pleasure, mutual pleasure. Not just procreation, it is used for that, but for mutual pleasure. And not just for some purely mechanical, physical action so a guy doesn't go elsewhere looking for action, right? Like a lot of Christian preaching and leadership over the last 50 years in literature has led us to think that sex and that a sex for a wife is just helping her husband like not go elsewhere. That couldn't be further from the truth. And it's a total distortion and twisting of scripture. The scripture makes it clear that God has given sex for mutual satisfaction. And and the Christian preaching and literature on this topic has even led to a lot of, especially in the Christian community, a lot of selfish sex that views it as some physical or mechanical thing just to help my husband out, but it's not really for me. And the husband doesn't view it that either. And so it's led to a lot of selfish sex and dissatisfied wives. And so if in your sexual relationship in the covenant of marriage, if there's not mutual pleasure happening, then there needs to be a conversation. And if you're not able to navigate that conversation on earth, then you need to be in counseling. I've told you all throughout this series, Darby and I have a Christian counselor. We see a Christian counselor, right? We've had our fair share of issues. You need to be talking about this and communicating this. If there is not mutual pleasure, you need to figure out why, because there is a disconnect somewhere and it must be rectified. So you need to have the conversation or you need to go see a counselor that can help you have the conversation. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter three. Watch this, he leads with this. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. There's no, there's no selfish, there's no one-way sex ha- happening here, no. Paul says a husband should fulfill her wife's sexual needs. Now, you're gonna get there in a different way. A lot of times you get there with a guy, right? And so that's where the communication comes in. That's where the previous three weeks have come in, right? But Paul says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body. There's there's a mutuality. There's a sharing here that's happening. This isn't one way. No, it's for mutual pleasure. Paul says do not deprive each other of sexual Relations, I'm gonna tell you something you've probably never heard in church before. And you're like, brother, we are long past that already, okay? I get it, I get it. But God wants you to have tons of great sex with your spouse. Like it's clear all throughout the scripture. God wants you to have tons of great sex with your spouse. I know a lot of guys are turning their wives saying, I like this church, we're coming back, okay? Now, every time I say that, here's what I get asked. I get asked this uh, in, in counseling, and I, I get asked this just joking around. Well, well, when you say tons, like how often? Like what's tons? Like how often is often enough? Well, years ago, for a series I did on marriage and, and, and sex, um, I was asked this question, and so I decided, like I, I don't really wanna talk about this you know, in a message, but I, I get asked this all the time, so I decided to go and ask Darby, and I asked our Christian counselor, who's been in counseling for over 30 years and leads marriage conferences all over the country with her husband. And so I asked her, I asked her counselor, I asked Darby, I said, hey, how often is often? Is once a year often? No, they said. Is once a month often? No, they said. I said, what about once a week? And they said, okay, we're getting in the realm of often, right? Once a week, 
Okay? Now, most stats that I, I, I studied this week, most stats say that at least once a week in a healthy marriage. But if things aren't healthy, and, and no marriage is perfect, but if things aren't healthy, then that's probably not happening. And that would be a bad expectation on your part. If things aren't healthy in your marriage relationship. That's why this is the last message in a four-week series. The first three weeks are about getting healthy. Not, not perfect, but getting healthy. And if things are healthy, then there's a different expectation. Our counselor told Darby and I, when we first got married, she said, you should shoot for every 72 hours. And we were both like, yes, ma'am, we got the assignment, all right? That's some good homework right there, and we will, we will complete it, okay? Here's what the NIV application commentary says. The Bible is to be sure, fully aware of lust and the misuse of sex, the abuse of sex, but at the same time, it is forthright in approving the wholesomeness of sex, the passionate physical attraction between man and woman who find in this the fulfillment of their deepest longings is seen to be a healthy, natural thing. The Bible is clear. God is for sex. Secondly, God is for you. He's for sex. He's for you. Because you have a perfect heavenly father who wants what's best for you. God does not want to see. He does not want to see his kids get hurt. Right? No, no parent wants to watch their kids hurt and go through pain. And so because God is for you, he doesn't want you to get hurt. He wants you to experience his best. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? You belong to Christ. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute, have sex with someone that's not his wife? No, never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her, for the scriptures say the two are united. There's that word again from Genesis 2. The two are united into one. So here's what Paul is saying. Here's what the scripture's teaching is. Sex is designed to take a husband and a wife and unite them into one. Through sex, God created a way to join people together for life. This is called intimacy. It's a joining together. Intimacy is to be fully known and to know fully. Intimacy is a lifelong friendship laced with sexual passion. The foundation for intimacy, as we've said, is exclusivity, is purity. This word united in Hebrew as we've talked about over the past few weeks, it means to connect two things together, to stick together like glue. And Andy Stanley said this in his book, Love, Sex, and Dating, The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating, about this Hebrew word for united. He said this, sex was designed as an adhesive. It's sticky. It brings two people together. It's meant to help two people together, hold two people together permanently. Thus the term unites. Sex has a uniting quality. If you apply, remove, reapply, and re-remove an adhesive, it begins to lose its adhesiveness. Every time you have sex with a different partner, you apply, remove, and then reapply this powerful but somewhat fragile relational uniter. 
eventually your sex, sexual experience will begin to lose its stickiness, its, the, the intimacy. And, and the way you'll know is that sex will begin to lose its significance. You'll view it as just something physical, as just something mechanical. But Stanley says, because sex is this uniter. It, it brings two people together that when you apply and remove and then reapply and then re-remove, like you're damaging intimacy and you're hurting future intimacy. It's one reason that Song of Solomon was written. One of, one of the purposes of Song of Solomon was to show that sex with multiple partners is empty and mechanical. The purpose was to show how amazing, erotic, passionate, intense sex done God's way really is. It reveals to us that you're missing out, actually, when you do sex the world's way and not God's way. Have you ever seen how, like, sports teams, and you're like, you're going to relate sex to sports? Well, of course, I'm a guy, right? And so, but have you ever seen how a sports team that's, like, been together for a long time, like, performs better than teams that are constantly like in motion and having different, you know, people added and, and people go and they're traded, right? Like we see this with the Spurs. I'm not a Spurs fan, but the Spurs had a core that were together, management, right? Coaching players that were together and they saw a lot of, they won a lot of games and they won a lot of championships. The Warriors are the same. The ownership, right? Coaching, players, most of the players have, have stayed the same. And so they've been very successful. They've won a lot of games. They've won a lot of championships, right? We, we've seen this with the Chiefs even. Now Tyreek's gone, so there's a tear there for him leaving, okay? But, but there's a lot of pieces that are still the same, the, the Patriots were a great example of this. A lot of parts, right, that were there and together for a long time. A lot of success, right? Why is that? Why, why is that? Because they get to know each other. They spend time together. And that's a powerful combination. And the same is true for sex. Contrary to what our culture will preach and teach to us, it has been proven. Study after study after study, I looked at many over the last week. Study after study has proven that married sex is the best sex. Our culture will preach to you something different, but the studies will say married sex is the best sex. All the stats say that sexual satisfaction increases the longer that you are married and the older you get. So older married people are having the best sex. Like I hate to break it to you, but your parents and your grandparents are having some great sex, okay? Like I, I, I get it, you don't wanna think about that, but it's just true. And why is that? Because they've been doing it forever, okay? They've had a lot of practice, and so they're really good at it. Darby and I are 19 years in and it's better than ever. I can't imagine what it's gonna be like in 20 years, okay? So, so married sex, over and over and over again, the scripture's gonna tell us, culture is going to prove, they're not gonna preach it, but it's going to prove to us through study after study that married sex done God's way is the best way. This is why we save sex for marriage. Because God loves you, he's for sex, he's for you. We save sex 
for marriage because it's not just physical, it's not just mechanical. No, it involves joining your soul to someone else's. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage said this, the Bible does not counsel abstinence, sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex or because we're prudes or something. No, it's quite the opposite but because it has such a lofty view of sex. The biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but it's personally harmful. You've got a loving father who loves his kid and wants what's best for his child. And so he says, sex done my way is going to be a blessing to you. It's gonna bring joy and pleasure and satisfaction. But if you don't do it my way, it's not just morally wrong in the eyes of God, it's personally harmful to you and God is for you. If sex is designed to be a part of making a covenant and experiencing that covenant's renewal, then we should think of sex as an emotional commitment apparatus. When we have sex outside the way God designed it, it just creates pain, brokenness, and regret. That's why Paul warns us of the pain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 18, he said this, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual morality is a sin against your own body. Paul says sex outside of God's design and best is just hurting you. It's punishing yourself because it just brings pain. No other sin affects you or hurts you like this one does. Sexual sin just cuts deeper. It leaves a more noticeable scar. You hurt your soul. It robs you of future intimacy. And even though sexual sin isn't unforgivable, praise God, it can make life difficult. And even though sexual sin won't send you to hell, it can make life hell on earth. No other sin, Paul says, affects you the way sexual sin does. And I've been there. And I know a lot of you have too. Sex is for married people. Not because God is against sex. No, we've proven that he's for it. But because God is for you. God is for sex. And God is for you. The problem for most of us is We've got our sin line in the wrong place, if you will. Like we look at sex or adultery and we kind of look at that as like going all the way, right? And when we look at that as kind of the sin line, the problem is that the sin line's like way back here in the scripture. Jesus said this, because because long before you ever cross the adultery line, you're gonna cross all sorts of other sin lines on your way to just crossing one more. And so Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five, that if you lust after a man or woman in your heart, you're committing adultery in your heart. Jesus said the sin line starts in your heart. Lust leads to porn a lot of times and porn has been proven to be like a drug. And I'm not just saying that like metaphorically, metaphorically, no, I'm telling you, Physically, chemically, porn is like a drug. It literally hits your brain physically and chemically in the exact same way a drug does. That's why it's so addicting. That's why you start watching it and you watch more and you watch more and you watch more because it hits your brain exactly like a drug. That's why it's so hard to stop. It's just like a drug. confiding in someone, 
that's not your spouse, flirting with someone that leads your, that, that's not your spouse. Sin lines way back here. It, it always leads to emotional and sexual relationships. The sin line is not where you think it is. It's why you always end up so much further than you ever thought you could possibly go. And that's true in almost every area of life. The sin line is not where you think it is. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 3, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Paul says, run and don't let there even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Paul says, run. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, you've got to get extreme. If your right hand causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus says, gouge it out. I mean, most dudes should be walking around like one-armed cyclopses because we got to get extreme. And lest you think that porn is just a, an issue for men, it's actually been proven that just as many women are looking at porn as guys are. We must get extreme here. With whatever the sin line is, I've got to get extreme. My phone, my laptop, and my iPad are all completely shut down to where I couldn't even get to something if I wanted to. Our staff, many of us, we've encouraged you to use a software called Covenant Eyes. And in Covenant Eyes, you use their browser, it shuts things down, you can't get to it, you have accountability partners, my wife and Mark and Brandon are on my accountability list, and so I can't get to anything, but even if I did, it would notify them. All of those things are shut down. Every social media I have, Mark and Darby both have access to. In fact, when I get a message or I send a message on social media on any of the platforms I'm on, Mark gets a notification and he sees it. I don't even have my notifications turned on for, for messages. Some of you figured that out. I, I, don't, I don't have any notifications on for any social media. But Mark does and he knows when I get a message on social media. Darby knows all my passwords, so does our staff. No secrets. You've got to get extreme and cut the head off of that beast that's trying to ruin your life. You better run and run fast and hard away from all, even a hint of sexual sin because the line isn't where you think it is. Everything we've talked about today is the design. And as we said all throughout this series, the design is the ideal, but we live in the real. And I've been in the real, and I know a lot of you have too. This is the design, we preach the design. The design is the ideal, we live in the real, and there's, there's always grace for the real. In Genesis chapter two, verse 25, it says this, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. At, at this moment, they're, they're trusting God, they're doing things God's way. They're experiencing God's best. There's pleasure. There's joy, right? They're doing things God's way. They're experiencing the blessing and the joy that comes from living according to the design, doing things God's way. 
But then what happens? They, they sin against God. They, they, they break God's law. They quit trusting God. They do things their own way and, and they, they feel shame. And it says at that moment, their eyes are open and suddenly they, they feel shame. There, there wasn't any shame, but now there's shame because the, the, the design was the ideal, but, but they live in the real, just like you and I. And, and so if you've ever experienced the, the, the real of not doing something God's way, there, there's shame that comes with that. And, and they felt the shame at their nakedness. And so what do they do? They, like a lot of us, they try to cover it up. They sewed fig leaves for themselves together to cover themselves. They're trying to cover up their shame. Well, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden. And so what does shame do? Watch this. So I hid because I was afraid because I was naked. That's what shame always does. It brings fear, right? So that you hide from God, you hide from your spouse, you hide from others, you hide from the church. That's what shame always does. It brings fear that leads to hiding. The Hebrew word for shame is to feel completely worthless. You ever felt like that? I have. I definitely if you've been here for very long, I mean, you, you've known my story. I mean, in, in high school, first part of college, like I was not doing things God's way. I was not doing sex God's way. And it brought a lot of pain. It brought a lot of hurt, not just to me, but to the people around me. And you feel completely worthless. And my guess is a lot of you, if not all of you, have felt that same feeling at one point in time or another. And, and here's what we're always tempted to do. Just like Adam and Eve, when we feel shame, we wanna hide from God, hide from our spouse, hide from our church, hide from others. I think we've all responded like that at one time or another. But, but here's what we've got to understand. As long as you hide in your shame, you stay the same. There, there, there's, there's freedom, there's joy, there's healing on the other side of confession, but as long as we hide in shame, we stay the same. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says this, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they repent from their sin, they will receive, what's this word? Mercy. The design is the ideal. We live in the real. There's grace for the real. There's mercy for the real. When you confess, you turn from your sin, you receive mercy. And that's what Adam and Eve experienced, right? They, they, they come out, they confess what they've done, and they receive mercy. It doesn't mean there wasn't consequences. It doesn't mean there weren't changes in their life. No, 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 that there were, but they received mercy. You see, here's what you've got to understand. If, if, you're going to experience intimacy in your life. And the, and the essence of intimacy is exclusivity and purity. Here's what you've got to understand, though, about intimacy. Secrecy is always the enemy of intimacy. 
Secrecy is always going to be the enemy of your intimacy. It's true with the Lord, it's true with family and friends, and it is definitely true with your spouse. Secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. That's why inherent in the vow of purity, I, I promise to give myself wholly and completely to my two, exclusively to my two. That, that's why inherent in the vow of purity is this promise. I promise to confide and not hide. I'm gonna confide. I'm not gonna hide. I'm going to confide because secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. I'm going to confide and not hide. So I'm gonna confess to a friend, a family member, a pastor, a spouse. What are you going to confess? Well, for some of us, it's going to be past sins and struggles and things like that. For others of us, it's going to be current sins and struggles, right? And for almost all of us, it's going to be any past thing that's still reoccurring into and affecting my present. We're going to confide and not hide. And then to the one hearing that confession, and maybe that will be you this week, to the one hearing that confession, here's your promise, and it's inherent in the vow of purity. To the one hearing the confession, here's the promise. The promise of mercy, here's what you gotta understand. The promise of mercy is going to be the antidote to that secrecy. The promise of mercy is going to be the antidote to secrecy in your relationship. And so if you don't want to be any, there to be any secrets, there's got to be the assurance. There's got to be the promise of mercy in the same way that God has extended mercy to us, that, that there must be this promise of mercy. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean there aren't changes. but it does mean there must be mercy. And why? Why are you going to extend mercy? Because you have fallen too, and you're gonna fall again. You have fallen too, and you're going to fall again. And God's mercies are new and plenty to you every single day. And so because God has extended mercy and grace and compassion and unfailing love and forgiveness unconditionally to you, you are going to extend mercy and forgiveness and compassion to your spouse. If you've never read the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, it is a powerful book in the Old Testament. And here's what you learn throughout the prophet Hosea is that your sin... Like, like, not your spouses, not your family, not your friend, right? Not your child. Like, your sin is like adultery to God. And so God tells Hosea, hey, I want you to go and marry this prostitute. And the reason I want you to do this is it's going to symbolize, like, my great love and mercy and compassion for you. And that you and the nation of Israel have continued to sin against me and rebel against me and your sin is like adultery to me, yet I continue to love you and show mercy and compassion and unfailing forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness towards you. You're going to go and marry this prostitute and this prostitute ends up cheating on Hosea over and over and over again and God says you're gonna continue to pursue her and woo her back to yourself in spite of her 
sin. And God says, it's going to be this picture of the way that you have treated me and the way that I continue to pursue you and forgive you. And so in Hosea, God says to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he says this, don't point your finger at someone else. And that's what we do a lot of times in the marriage relationship. We we point, we elbow. God says, no, your sin is like adultery to me. And that's a much bigger deal. And so he says, don't point the finger at someone else. God actually says this, my complaint is with you. So point the finger at yourself. Don't point your finger at anyone else. Point the finger at yourself. God says, my complaint is with you. You are the one that is committing adultery against me. And yet I continue to call out to you. And if you're like me, and you've messed up here, the great news in Hosea is that God loves you and pursues you in spite of your past, in spite of last month, in spite of, last, in spite of yesterday. God loves you and continues to pursue you in spite of your sin. And it actually says this all throughout Hosea. God says, even though you've been far from me, I have been and am calling out to you. You, like not the person next to you, you have been far from me. And God says, I have been and I am calling out to you, wooing you over and over and over again, calling out to you in your sin, in your adultery against me. God says, I continue to call out to you over and over and over again. And it says this to this prostitute, that's you and me, that have sinned against God over and over and over again. God says this to the prostitute, I'm going to show my righteousness, my unfailing love. My compassion. I'm gonna show the prostitute my righteousness, my unfailing love, my compassion. This entire book is a picture, it's a foreshadow of the great news of the gospel that we find at the cross where the sinner, where the prostitute comes and humbles themselves and confesses their sin and gives their life to Jesus. And it's in the gospel that all of your sin is wiped away. You're made clean. You're made pure and holy and righteous and blameless regardless of what you've done. In the great news of the gospel, your sin that was like scarlet is wiped away. You're made white as snow. The entire book of Hosea, it's this, it's this previous, this picture, it's this foreshadow of the gospel that is to come, that is made possible by the cross of Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter two that on the cross, God nailed the record of your sin, your past, those labels, 
He nailed it to the cross. And it says the record of your sin, it was canceled at the cross. And you were forgiven, you were made clean. But, but, but then it says this, not only was the record of your sin canceled, but then in that same moment on the cross, he disarmed every ruler and authority and person that would try to hold your past or hold your sin over you. At the cross, the record was canceled. It was forgiven. An enemy who would want to hold your sin over your head was disarmed and defeated because your sin was forgiven. You were made clean. It was all wiped away. And listen, you, you can't experience that, that righteous, that right standing with God by doing better and trying harder. Like you can't leave here and do better and try harder your way into being right with God or forgiven of your sin or being made clean. That's not the way it works. The gospel says in Romans chapter three, no, you come and believe that Jesus sacrificed his life and shed his blood in your place for your sin on the cross. You believe that Jesus died for you and that he rose again and you give your life to Jesus and your sin is forgiven. You're made right with God and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. When you give your life to Jesus, not when you've done better, not when you've tried harder, not when you've tried to do all the one, two, threes that we've been, no, 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 no. You give your life to Jesus and your sin is forgiven. You're made right with God and you're sin that was like scarlet is made as white as snow. And so if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, today is your day. Now is your time. Give your life to Jesus. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form, and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. So, so here's what we're saying, because, we, because we've all got a past, right? We, the, the design is the ideal. We live in the real. There's grace for the real. So there, there, there's redemption. We, we see that all throughout the book of Hosea and in the great news of the gospel, there is redemption. And so from today forward, because our God redeems, here's what we're committing to. We're committing to the vow of purity from this day forward that says this, I promise to give myself exclusively to my two exclusively to my two because the essence of intimacy is exclusivity. Without purity, Without exclusivity, without mercy, your intimacy is going to suffer. And if you're single, here's the, here's the challenge for you. Purity now paves the way to intimacy later. Purity now will pave the way for intimacy later. Your sexual purity is an investment. It's an investment in your happiness and the happiness of your future spouse. It's the investment of a lifetime of the best possible sex that God wants for you with your spouse. And so purity now paves the way for intimacy later. In Psalm 119, this question is posed. How, how can a young man, a young woman keep his way pure? And, and here's the answer. By guarding it, by guarding my life, by guarding my way according to your word. I'm gonna do things your way. I'm gonna trust that you want what's best for me, that you're not against me having fun. No, you're for my fun. You're for my pleasure. You're just a great heavenly father that doesn't wanna see his kid get hurt. And so I'm gonna guard my way according to your word with my whole heart. I'm gonna seek you. And so let me not wonder from your commandments. God, I need you to do something for me that I can't do for myself. 
And so I need you to help me not wander away from your commitments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the vow of priority all the way back to the beginning of the series. How am I going to pursue my spouse and, and be a good partner and live in, in pure? How, how am I gonna do all of this? The vow of priority. I'm gonna seek you, Lord, with all of my heart. And I'm gonna need your help because I can't do it without you. Don't, don't let me wonder, I need you. I need you, don't let me wonder. I'm gonna seek you with all of my heart. I'm gonna study your word. I'm gonna submit to your word. I'm gonna hide it in my heart. But the only way any of this is possible is if you are committed to the vow of priority, I'm gonna seek the Lord with all of my heart and he's gonna transform me and he's gonna empower me to live a life that honors God, to have a marriage that honors God. You know, as we close this series, I just wanna tell you that I believe, Darby and I believe, everything that we've been talking about all throughout the series, is, it's worth it. It's worth it. Like, by the grace of God, Darby and I are in the best place in our marriage than we've ever been. But I haven't always been like that. I told you throughout the series, we, we've had our fair share of problems. I hurt her sometimes, she hurts me. We've had major disagreements that we've had to have Christian counseling. And we've experienced both the pain of doing things our way and the blessing and joy that comes from doing things God's way. And here's what we would both tell you 19 years in, it's worth it. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean there aren't wounds. Doesn't mean it's not gonna take both. But it's worth it. And I want that for you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you come and touch every single heart in this room right now? God, there are wounds, there is brokenness, there are hurts, there's pain, there's regret, there are secrets. And we need you to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need you to soften hearts. We need you to heal. We need you to restore, we need you to reconcile. And so Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. We don't rely on wise and persuasive words like Paul said, we are relying on a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. There are some impossible situations in this room right now. But God, nothing is too hard from you. There's nothing that's too hard for you. You are the God of the impossible. And so Holy Spirit, at this moment, we pray for miraculous signs and wonders in hearts and in marriages. 
God, we pray for marriages that will be a blessing to wives, a blessing to husbands, a blessing to future generations that will honor God. God, we confess our absolute and complete dependency and need for you to come and do what only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.